Let's go to God in prayer. Our God, we as your people have tasted of your goodness, and we crave uh, the fullness of your good grace to us. And we ask now that through these, your appointed means of grace this morning, through word and sacrament, you would in fact give us a deep and satisfying, uh, nourishing draft of pure spiritual milk this morning. Grow us up, we pray, day by day into our salvation. We pray you would incline our hearts to you, to your word, and not to ourselves. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things. Give us life in your ways. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Let's stand and read. We'll read from verse 22 of chapter 1 through verse 3 of chapter 2. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Amen. This is God's Word. may be seated. I said last week that that this text was difficult to break up, so this is sort of part B of of a two-parter here, and I'm going to do something a little different this week. I'm going to go Puritan style on you. Um, That's not to say I'm going to go for two hours with 25 points, but just that Puritans would often have a section on exposition, and then go into kind of a few points of doctrine, and then go into application. So I kind of broke it up that way, a little differently from how I normally do. Uh, the Bible speaks in many ways about that radical transformation we undergo when we become Christians. There's there's this idea of regeneration, or the the old man versus the new man. Um, you kind of have in, in Ezekiel that, that replacing of the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. You see the the valley of dry bones. One of the clearest ways it's expressed is by Paul when he speaks of the life in the Spirit versus the life in the flesh. In Romans 8 or Galatians 5, 16 and 17, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Of course, it's not Christianity is not Platonism. It's not as though we are distinguishing between soul and body, and the soul is good and the body is bad, but rather to say that we are as new creatures in Christ, born again in the Spirit, and that's opposed to the old man, the fleshly man. So the way Peter phrases it in First Peter is he talks about the new birth, this analogy of the new birth. Last week we saw Peter told us that we were uh, born again via the eternal and living Word of God. 
And this week now in verses 1 through 3, we're given kind of a picture of how we're sustained and nourished as people who have been born again. Chapter 2 begins with that word so or therefore. So we've got to go back again to the preceding context at the end of chapter 1. And honestly, I think it would have been better if they ended chapter 1 after verse 3 of chapter 2. I wasn't involved in that discussion. (laughs) He says, once again, beginning in verse 23 of chapter 1, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So you can see that divide that he's making there between the, the flesh and spirit. He's, he's got this imperishable and perishable seed. And we're all born of the flesh, that perishable seed. But believers are born of the imperishable mm-hmm. seed, the word of God. Uh, there's this divide here between the temporal life and the eternal life. Those born of the flesh, those born of the word. So the seed that is of God, this this word of God is the good news that is preached to you, Peter says. In Peter's mind, the preached word of God, the proclaimed word of God, brought these people to spiritual life. And it's from this framework, this framework of newness of life, that Peter begins his next charge in chapter 2, in verse one, he says, So, or therefore, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he says, Therefore, put these things away. On the basis of that new birth, put these things away. The word here is actually kind of like take off, like you're taking off your clothes. We're to take off the, the garments of the old man with its practices and to put on the new. So these new practices, <laughs> these taking off of the old practices occurs kind of downstream from the new birth. It's a result of the new birth. Next he says, put away, put away these things. Last night I had dinner with Larry and Jerry, both military guys. If you hear very many military stories, you realize that clothing has a lot to do with the military. And and you can identify a lot of things from a person's clothing, especially in that environment. You can identify their branch, maybe their rank, maybe even their demeanor, how they carry themselves. So the garb of a person kind of shows who they are. Peter's saying here, take off that garb that marked you out as a person born of perishable seed. He says you're born again of imperishable, so you have no business wearing that stuff anymore. The word put away, ESV says put away. Um, they translate it as, a, as an imperative. It's a, it's a participle. It's, I prefer the phrase, while putting away these things long for the pure spiritual milk in other words those two things kind of happen simultaneously 
Now, what are these pieces of clothing which kind of identify a person born of the flesh? This isn't a complete vice list, but um, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Malice is also just wickedness, has that implication of that which is harmful, damaging. Deceit is kind of to trick people. To use falsehood to, to trick them into do, doing something, treachery. Hypocrisy, kind of give an impression of, that you have one motivation, one intention, well, all the while you have another one. We talked last week, this word was in our text last week as well, it's the idea of having that mask on, the old play actor. You have kind of two faces, hypocrisy. Envy. A state of ill will towards somebody. Maybe because they have an advantage over you. Um, They have something you don't have. Some jealousy. A slander. To speak against someone. Maybe to gossip or um, just speak evil of someone. To cut people down. All these things, these five things, are things of the old man. Things that were to put off. Things that were to take off. Garments that don't belong on the new creature. Notice that they contrast perfectly love in verse 22 that we talked about last week. He says in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere or unhypocritical is the actual literal term, a sincere brotherly love Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The two things are in direct contrast to one another. Peter says, take off those things. They don't belong on you anymore. And he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, what is the relationship between a newborn infant and his mother's milk? They, they have to have it. It's, it's life or death. There's no other sustenance aside from formula, but that's beside the point. Uh, Ed Clowney has a great comment here. He says, The wonder of a mother at birth of a child becomes delight at the readiness of her infant to feed. Any delay at feeding time brings a powerful reaction from the tiny person. For an infant, milk is not a fringe benefit. And I don't think Peter here is speaking only to baby Christians. Like you you baby Christians, you infant Christians, long for the pure spiritual milk. It's not like elsewhere in the Bible where milk is contrasted against meat. The analogy is as much as infants need spiritual or mother's milk, we need pure spiritual milk as well. So what is this pure spiritual milk? It's a difficult question. There's a lot of debate on it. Most say that it's the Word, the Word of God that we see at the end of chapter 1. And a few others, like Calvin and uh, Hort, um, Karen Jobs, I I agree with them that it it includes the Word of God, but it's more than the Word of God. So they would expand it to uh, the fullness of divine grace upon which all reborn believers must depend on to sustain life in Christ. And this interpretation is based on verse 3 
and also how the word spiritual is uh, interpreted here. So the word spiritual, uh, Karen Jobs, she concludes that the word means that which is true or real to nature. I think that's accurate. So the born-again spiritual life of the Christian requires a sustenance that, sustenance that matches that reality. You're born again spiritually, you need to have a spiritual food to sustain that new life. Peter also calls this spiritual milk pure. And I don't think it's right to suggest that Peter means to tell his audience, don't long for the impure spiritual milk. He's just saying that that spiritual milk, that's the very nature of the milk, that it's pure, that it is sustaining like mother's milk. Uh, Hort here says on that note that it's unlikely that St. Peter means to contrast with other milk which is adulterated. He is thinking only of the child at its mother's breast and to him is as such the kind of food by which the nature of the case cannot be adulterated. This he implies is the characteristic of spiritual sustenance which proceeds directly from God himself. Now, what does Peter mean here by grow up into salvation? Now, that one's stuck in my head. That's an interesting way of speaking. And most commentators kind of get caught up in the whole what is the spiritual milk thing, and they forget about this huge question. (laughs) And to me, you could almost read it like, so we get born again, and then now we have to grow up and somehow achieve, obtain salvation by growing up, drinking the spiritual milk. What, What does he mean by that? I think the way Clowney puts it is is perfect. He says, Peter writes to those who have already been given new birth by the word, who have already come to the Lord and tasted that he is good. There is a sure hope for their inheritance is kept for them and they are kept for it. Yet their hope is also future. They do not merely wait for it. And here's the, the good part. He says, they grow toward it like flowers toward the sun. Faith is purified, love is intensified, grace is tested. It's kind of like Ephesians 4, uh, 15. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. I think that's the sense that he has here, that we're to grow up, to mature into the salvation that we already have, and the idea of becoming who we are. And in verse 3, he says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the logic here of verses 2 and 3 is more, Since you have tasted that the Lord is good, therefore crave or long for that spiritual milk. This uh, verse 3 is quoted or taken from Psalm 34, an acrostic psalm of praise written by David. And the inscription on the psalm says it's when he kind of deceived King Abimelech or Achish, depending on how you um, look at it. But he, 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 you remember, he was brought into this Philistine king's presence and, and he started, he got nervous because the, the guys were saying, well, this is David, you know, he's killed thousands and thousands. So David started to kind of drool on his beard and act mentally ill. And he said, well, look at the guy, you know, he's a mess. So he sent him out and God saved him through those means and that's where Psalm 34 comes from it's a psalm of praise after God saves him in that way and Peter probably has kind of the whole context 
of the entire psalm in mind when he references it here. Um, Verses 4 through 9 of Psalm 34. I'll read those to you. They have a specially strong connection, I think. David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34 calls the people of God to taste and see that the Lord is is good. And Peter here changes that imperative, taste and see, to you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. His audience has tasted the goodness of the Lord via their salvation, just as David did through his salvation from King Achish. And the taste of the goodness of the Lord lingers on their tongues, which causes them to crave all the more of the goodness of the Lord. So that's kind of a brief explanation of the exposition of the verses. So I just want to go back now and point out a few doctrinal things, two two points of doctrine and a few points of application. So we know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. What about regeneration? Does new birth come by hearing and by hearing by the word of Christ in the same way? I think chapter 1 shows clearly that it does. At the end of chapter 1. So the first point of doctrine here I want us to consider is that the new birth is a result of hearing the proclaimed word. Verses 23 through 25, once again. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And we need to be careful not to think that it's we who do the work, as Larry mentioned in his talk about his friends who, you know, it's not us, right? It's, it's God. As I pointed out last week, God's words are working words, or as Michael Horton says, they are event-generating discourse. It's the words that do the work through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the blowing of the wind. And the word of God, we are regenerated. So the value of God's word proclaimed is, is inestimable, which is a huge comfort to me, because it's not about me or how well I do it. It's because the words work. And praise God, as you go to England, it's not what you do. It's You're just spreading seed. You're spreading seed, and it's up to God to water. Or he says we water, but God causes the growth. So we can do that in a variety of ways, even if you're not a preacher. You know, just everyday conversation, having people over to your home, uh, going to the middle school to to preach the gospel. You know, even social media outlets, if you're into that kind of thing. Anywhere, just distributing the word of God is distributing the seed of life, the life-giving word. 
second point of doctrine here that I want to just consider, which there could be many points, but I'll just give you two, is that Christians are in a process of being matured by God. Christians are in a process of being matured. Uh, Verse 1 again, So put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. I'm sure you have asked the question, I have, okay, I've been united to Christ, I've been united to His people, I believe in Christ, why doesn't He just rapture me right now? That would be nice, I would vote for that. <laughs> but He doesn't, He we're still here, and He has a purpose for it. So, at least one answer that we just discussed is that we're responsible for scattering seed. But the other is that He is into maturing us. He is growing us up in Christ. He's purifying His bride, as Ephesians 5 says. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So, of course, he's done that in a once-for-all legal declaration kind of way. But there's also a sense in which we are being matured. We are being brought up, grown up into salvation. Paul says that's basically the mission of his life in Colossians. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so, our life here is difficult. As I said, I would, I would vote for instantaneous rapture if I could. I don't know why people don't consult me on things. I have good ideas. But God has a purpose in keeping us here. That is growth in maturity. So I find Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4.16-18 through 18, comforting. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So finally, before we close, just a few points of application Uh, Three kind of questions to get our minds rolling and and one observation. So the first question is, are we constantly in the process of removing the garments which mark us out as ones born of the flesh? We know, Luther said, uh, all, all the Christian life is a life of repentance. Unfortunately, we can't remove all our fleshly garments at once. And Honestly, it's, it feels more at times like peeling off layers of skin rather than taking off dirty jeans. It, it's hard and painful. But it's also beneficial. God's commandments are not burdensome to obey. They're life-giving. Take, for example, again, the, the fleshly attributes listed in verse 1. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. As I said, these all run contrary to love. 
And we all long for love. We long for those relationships in the church that are loving, that are sincere, unhypocritical, earnest from a pure heart. We all crave that. And so keeping these things, removing the these fleshly attributes is not burdensome. It's liberating because it frees us to love and be loved in the covenant community. Second question of application. Have we tasted the goodness of God? Have we tasted the goodness of God personally? Chapter 1 of 1 Peter is basically a list of the goodness of God. You know, in verse 1, we're, we're elect. Verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You know, we could go through chapter 1, you get the point. But the question is, do we taste the goodness of God? Or are these things just doctrines to us? Are they present realities which move our souls? Are we like David who, after seeing his salvation, turns and prays and wonder toward God in Psalm 34? Is God good in our minds and our hearts? Third question of application then, does the goodness of God cause us to want more and more? Does the goodness of God cause us to want more? Again, the logic from our verses here is, since you have tasted that the Lord is good, therefore crave, therefore long for that spiritual milk. John Piper has said some odd things lately. Say what you will about him, but he's good on this point. He's excellent on this point. His statement that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him is excellent. To taste the goodness of God, the life-giving Word of God, to taste the saving grace of God, to taste the awe-inspiring creative power of God in nature, and to say, I've had my fill of that, is nonsense. This is a this is a, a pale illustration, but I love brats. You know, some of you have a sweet tooth. I have a brat tooth. <laughs> if I didn't stop myself, I could easily eat a whole package of brats. The, the goodness of them inspires me to want more. I really enjoy them, and they're good, and so I want more. As I said, it's a pale comparison, but maybe give you the idea. So. Goodness inspires us to want more, to need more, to crave more. And we could never fill up on the goodness of God, so we crave it. So finally, an observation. Sometimes it appears that God is withdrawing His hand of goodness from us. He said life is painful. And the Psalms are really wonderful expressions of Christian relationship with God, that ebb and flow. So we just saw David's rejoicing in Psalm 34 at his salvation. Um, consider Psalm 13. You're welcome to turn there with me. to six verses. I can read it to you.
Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in the soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Let my enemy say, I have prevailed. Least my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Least my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So, the response of the one who has truly tasted that the Lord is good and craves it, when he feels as though God's goodness is turned from him, his response is, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? It's kind of like that the wail of the baby. When, when it's time to eat, it's time to eat. <laughs> One would think that the baby is on the edge of death, and so it cries, cries out. So if you feel that, if you feel as though God has turned his face from you, as it says, seek fervently, seek it fervently. I'm going to close uh, by returning to that quote from Clowney. I thought it was great. For an infant, milk is not a fringe benefit. For an infant, milk is not a fringe benefit. God's goodness is not a fringe benefit to the Christian. It's our pure spiritual milk. It's our lifeline. I'm going to close with First Chronicles 16. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him, sing praises to Him, tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in His strength, seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. O offspring of Israel, His servants, sons of Jacob, His chosen ones. Amen.